welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, I pray that you would guide us as we study your word today. And I pray that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that you would speak, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This week, we're studying the life of Jehoshaphat, son of Asa. He ruled the southern kingdom of Judah at the same time the wicked Ahab and Jezebel ruled the northern kingdom of Israel. Jehoshaphat was very aware of what was going on in Israel and the first thing he did was strengthen his borders against the growing evil he saw in the north. But that wasn't the only way in which he showed wisdom. Scripture reveals in 2 Chronicles 17 verses 3 to 4 that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the Baals but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. Jehoshaphat was proving to be as good a king as Ahab was a bad one. He followed the example of his ancestor David, not the example of Israel. He sought God and followed him, not the Baals or false gods all around him. Now, the Baals referred to here aren't just the one Baal we learned about last week. There were hundreds of these false gods or masters throughout the land. Generally, they were worshipped in high places, which were literally sites up on the mountains where anyone could go to worship whatever false deity they chose. And I think, you know, it's not really any different today, because in a way, people still want to worship a God of their own making rather than the God who is. Perhaps our Baals aren't quite so easily recognized, but they're just as numerous, just as appealing and just as dangerous to true faith. A modern idol might be an actual material object, but it might also be an idea or philosophy or practice that falsely promises life and happiness. An idol really is anything that captures our affections and draws us away from God. Verse 6 tells us that Jehoshaphat's heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord, and while he prepared his country militarily to face their opponents, he knew that they needed to be prepared spiritually as well. And he knew that that could only happen as they understood and obeyed the word of God. So he removed the high places and the wooden images that were destroying the faith of his people, and he sent priests and leaders across his kingdom to teach God's word from town to town. This was the most important thing he could have ever done. The book of Hebrews tells us that God's word changes us at the very core of who we are. As the people of Judah began to learn and obey God's word, their relationship with the Lord was restored. But there was another effect as well. Verse 10 tells us, The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah, so that they did not go to war against Jehoshaphat. 
I believe, actually, that this is the first glimpse of God's grace that we see in the life of Jehoshaphat. God honours those who honour his word. The people of Judah prospered in every way when they obeyed the Lord. The scripture says Jehoshaphat himself was blessed with riches and honour in abundance. It was a time of peace and prosperity in the land. And then, quite surprisingly, Jehoshaphat allowed his son to marry the daughter of Ahab, the very king he was guarding his borders against. It makes no sense, does it? In reality, Jehoshaphat was disobeying the very word of God he was teaching others to obey. God had consistently commanded his people not to intermarry with those who worshipped idols because he knew that would ultimately lead them into sin and grief and disaster. It's hard to imagine what could have led Jehoshaphat to make such a dangerous compromise. Did he grow careless and begin to think that he could handle anything? Had he been worn down, perhaps, by a lovesick son begging to marry the girl of his dreams? Was he the victim of a conspiracy on the part of Ahab and Jezebel to weaken Judah and bring it under their control? We can find many reasons for every unwise decision that is made. Unfortunately, one unwise decision often leads to others, and Jehoshaphat's inevitable visit with the in-laws resulted in that very thing. King Ahab wanted to go to war with Syria. What better way to cement the growing alliance between the two kingdoms than to go to battle together? And what better opportunity for the cunning Ahab to possibly rid himself of the prosperous and faithful Jehoshaphat? Amazingly, Jehoshaphat agreed to the proposition, but he hadn't completely lost touch with the need to seek God. And so he insisted that they seek out the counsel of the Lord before they set out to battle. Ahab brought in 400 of his false prophets, but Jehoshaphat refused to seek wisdom from any of them. He knew that a servant of the living God was needed, and ignoring Ahab's objections, he sent for a man of God by the name of Micaiah, a man Ahab hated, because he never prophesied anything favorable to the evil king. As could be expected, the false prophets all proclaimed exactly what they knew King Ahab wanted to hear. They promised a great victory and encouraged them to go to war. Though Micaiah was pressured to agree with their words, he refused to speak anything other than what the Lord gave him. At first, he mockingly repeated the advice of the false prophets as if he agreed with them, but Ahab quickly recognized what he was doing, and so he made Micaiah swear an oath to speak nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord. So he did. Micaiah boldly informed Ahab that the Lord planned disaster for him and promised the king, if you ever return safely, The Lord has not spoken through me. One can only wonder what must have been going through Jehoshaphat's mind as he saw all this drama played out before him. I mean, was he uncomfortable with all the lying and deceit of the false prophets? 
Was he drawn to the truth he heard from God's prophet, or was he merely embarrassed by it? Did he feel trapped and see no way out of the complicated situation he'd created for himself? We don't know, but we do know he went forward with the decision to go to war with Ahab. I think we've all been there, though, at one time or another, caught in a situation that we didn't envision or one we thought we could avoid, and then having to make another bad decision to try to resolve it. In looking back, we might even wonder why God didn't stop me. Why didn't he put on the brakes and keep me from doing something that wasn't wise? Well, in his grace, he often does. He arranges things so our plans don't work out, things fall through, or we simply can't go forward. He actually did that at other times in Jehoshaphat's life, but here... God didn't intervene, and though he revealed the truth of things through Micaiah, he didn't prevent Jehoshaphat from making his own poor decisions. But I think that too is really the grace of God. He doesn't treat us like pawns on a chessboard or slaves who have no will of their own. He made us in his image. He's given us the ability and the freedom to choose. He just longs for us to make the right choices. Unfortunately, the decision to go to war was not the only poor decision Jehoshaphat made that day. Let's continue reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 28. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat king of Judah went up to Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. You know, I honestly don't understand Jehoshaphat here. When he agrees to go into battle as the only one who was clearly identifiable as a king. Not surprisingly, we learn in verse 30 that the king of Israel was the particular target of their opponent. The king of Aram had ordered his chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone small or great except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him, but Jehoshaphat cried out and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him, for when the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel, they stopped pursuing him. What grace God showed Jehoshaphat! He was in trouble because of his own unwise choices, yet when he cried out, God heard and helped him. The Syrian soldiers retreated and Jehoshaphat was saved. I can't help but think Ahab must have felt totally protected in his armor, even as he watched Jehoshaphat being chased down by the Syrian soldiers. You can almost hear Ahab laughing in his helmet at the brilliance of his whole scheme. However, the battle was far from over. Verse 32. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the breastplate and the scale armor. The king told the chariot driver, Wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I have been wounded. 
All day long the battle raged and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot, facing the Arameans until evening. Then at sunset he died. It's worth noting that Jehoshaphat's life was saved even though he wore only robes. Yet Ahab was killed despite his armor. The text says an archer drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel in the most vulnerable spot possible. But there was nothing random about it. The prophet Elijah had earlier spoken the message from God that Ahab would one day be killed by the very king of Aram who was in the battle that day. Ahab was well aware that his days were numbered, and perhaps that's why he even went to battle in protective armor in the first place. He was still trying to defy God, but despite Ahab's deceitful strategies, God kept his promise. His purpose was fulfilled. This whole account just goes to prove that a person can't outsmart or outmaneuver God. The Lord knows how to guard his own and how to mark the unjust for punishment. Though God protected him, Jehoshaphat's alliance with the ungodly Ahab could not simply be passed over. He needed to see what he'd really done. And as he returned home, the Lord sent the prophet Jehu out to greet him with an unsympathetic message revealed in Second Chronicles 19 verses 1 to 4. God's servant challenged the king, asking, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is on you. Those must have been very hard words for Jehoshaphat to hear. I don't imagine he'd thought about his decisions in quite that way. I'm loving and helping wicked people who hate God by doing this. But that's how God saw his actions nonetheless. Give him his due, though, Jehoshaphat repented of what he had done, and he immediately made an about-face. He renewed his commitment to God, and then he did the same for his people. He brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. I love what this teaches us, that when we make wrong choices, God treats us as beloved children. He doesn't ignore our disobedience. He cares enough to rebuke us, to correct us, and to show us the truth of what we've done. And he doesn't always remove the consequences of our actions, but he never leaves us to deal with them alone. And he always shows us a way forward. So what were the consequences that Jehoshaphat had to live with as a result of his wrong choices? Remember that as his reign began, no one in the region had dared come against him. But the alliance he made with Ahab's northern kingdom had been interpreted as a sign of weakness by those around him, and now he was seen as vulnerable. The result was that several armies moved against him. Second Chronicles chapter 20 proves, however, that he had learned from his recent experience with Ahab, for as soon as he heard the news of the approach of the three armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, 
who joined forces against him, the alarmed Jehoshaphat knew what to do with his fear. He immediately called the nation to a day of fasting in order to seek God without distraction. Look at how the king prayed once the people were gathered in Jerusalem in verse 5 and 6 of that chapter. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They've lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear and save us. Jehoshaphat began by affirming God's supremacy over all the kingdoms and nations of the earth. After witnessing what had happened to Ahab in the recent past, he knew that power and might belonged to the Lord, and he acknowledged that no one could withstand God. He reminded the Lord of his promise to Abraham and affirmed that they were crying out to God as their only source of hope. Jehoshaphat believed that God would hear and he would save his people just as he had done so many times before. Recognizing that they could not face the vast army that stood against them in their own strength, Jehoshaphat asked the Lord to deal with their enemies, proclaiming, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What an incredible prayer. There have been many times that I have used these very words when facing a problem of my own, praying, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And just as he did with Jehoshaphat, God has answered me, showing me a way where there seemed to be no way. As the whole nation stood before the Lord, the Holy Spirit came on a priest there by the name of Jehaziel, who spoke a message of encouragement to the crowd in verse 15. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. This is an interesting word from the Lord to say the least. Jehoshaphat had thousands of soldiers at his disposal, superbly trained and probably itching for a fight. But God said no, the battle was not theirs but his. He would fight for them, they would not have to do a thing. 
We're told in verse 18 that at this, Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Instead of questioning God's instructions or running to sharpen their swords or get their weapons together anyway just in case, the people of Judah bowed down in worship of God and they began to praise him by faith for what he was about to do. You know, I'm challenged by this for I realize that Instead of fretting in my own difficulties, I should be praising the God who goes with me. And instead of wringing my hands in fear, perhaps I should be praising him in advance of seeing him act. King Jehoshaphat and his people took the time to cry out to God, and they worshipped and praised him, focusing on his glory and his faithfulness rather than on their fear. The next morning they rose early and began their preparations to go out to face the armies of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, just as God had instructed. But as they marched, the king and his officials placed singers out in front of the soldiers to sing praise to God for his mercy and grace. The scripture tells us in verse 22 that as Israel began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they'd finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. We're not told exactly how it happened, how these ambushes were set by the Lord, but somehow disagreement broke out between the different armies and those who had been allied against God's people only moments before suddenly turned on one another. I can imagine each group boasting about how many of God's people they would kill in battle, then arguing about whose boasts were better then proving their swordsmanship skills on each other. We don't know exactly what happened, but scripture tells us that Ammon and Moab slaughtered the whole of the Edomite army from Mount Seir. And then they turned on one another until not a man was left alive. And when Jehoshaphat and his men got to the overlook where they could see the battlefield, it was just as God had promised. He had completely and utterly destroyed the enemy. All that remained was for the men of Judah to collect the plunder, which was so vast it took them three days to gather it together. Then scripture tells us in verse 26, On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Baraka, where they praised the Lord. This is why it's called the valley of Baraka to this day. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lyres and trumpets. 
The fear of God came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. They gathered in the valley of Beracha, which means the valley of blessing. And that really speaks to me, you know, because though the enemy's attack may have certainly seemed like a low point, a valley of fear in the life of the nation, God had turned it into a valley of blessing for them instead. And I love that they returned together to Jerusalem as well. This was no chaotic every man for himself victory celebration as other armies might indulge in. No, the men of Judah had come out as one and they would return as one. They had come out honoring God and focused on him. They would return in the same manner. So they went to the temple still singing and praising God. The account ends with the words, and the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. The nations around them feared the God who had fought for his people, and Jehoshaphat's kingdom enjoyed peace once again. This is such a glimpse of God's grace, and we would do well to apply it to our own lives, for he will also move against our enemies as we seek him and focus on him and his glory. We face enemies today as well. Paul reveals in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. For though those spiritual powers are already defeated by the death and resurrection of Christ, they are still trying to destroy the people God loves before their final end. And we are to battle them in the same way that Jehoshaphat did, standing in God's power, in his spiritual armor, and singing his praises. We can see many glimpses of God's grace in the life of Jehoshaphat. We see that God honors those who honor him and his word. Jehoshaphat's heart was devoted to the Lord's ways and God gave his kingdom rest and prosperity. To this day, Jehoshaphat is remembered as one of the good kings in the history of God's people. We also see that God loves us enough to correct us when we stumble and to lead us back to the right path. When Jehoshaphat failed to trust in and obey the Lord, making poor decisions and leading his people astray, he was quick to respond to God's correction, and God forgave him and re-established both him and his kingdom. And we see that God goes before us as we come against our enemies. When we go forward in faith, trusting in his word, following his instructions, seeking his glory above our own, he fights for us and gives us his peace. Whatever you may be facing, I pray that Jehoshaphat's prayer on the eve of his battle will truly become yours. Lord, 
I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I know from my own experience that our faithful God will show you what you need to do. Trust him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for what you've said to our hearts through Jehoshaphat. Lord, when we face times of trial in the future, help us to turn to you first, to take it seriously, to cry out to you, saying, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. But then, Lord, help us to give praise in advance of seeing you act and help us to continue to show up to take our place in your army, just as you have said that we should while we wait for the outcome. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.